there was a, a real movement to like, hey, we should just kill this thing. Customers would tell us they don't want it. It's destroying our financials. Our shareholders are skeptical. And I remember standing in front of the company and uh, we get anonymous questions, right, for our company meetings. And the most upvoted question was, when are we gonna shut down the video business? And uh, I stood in front of the company and I put up a picture of Cortez burning ships. I said, folks, there, there's no going back. We, this is the right thing to do. We, you know, cameras are proliferating. Our customers need to have video. The public is going to come to accept it. And the only way this can work is if we look to the future, not the past, delivering this as a service through the cloud is the only way the logistics make sense. So we are going to double down and stick with it. Hey, everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product-Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tiana Hanson-Drury, Chief Product Officer at MENA Technologies and all-around passionate product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product, and we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. Enjoy! This episode is brought to you by ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company building a more fact-driven world with consumer-grade search and AI-driven analytics. Build stickier product experiences by embedding ThoughtSpot Everywhere's interactive analytics interface directly into your data app or product. No more delayed release cycles or incremental UX improvements. ThoughtSpot Everywhere's developer-friendly platform replaces static dashboards with an interactive data experience in minutes, allowing users to intuitively dig into their data and trigger actions in their favorite business apps. Learn more and try ThoughtSpot for free today by visiting thoughtspot.com slash everywhere. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Product. I am very excited to have somebody joining me today from my home city in Seattle. Uh, his name is Rick Smith. And for those of you who know Rick, um, this may be unnecessary. But for those of you who don't, Rick is known as having been a pioneer of technology when it comes to solving some very interesting problems. So specifically, when it came to the vision of making the bullet obsolete, Rick founded the original company, Taser, in 1993. And as the Taser device became more well-known and ubiquitous in law enforcement, Rick pushed the company beyond weapons technology and towards a broader purpose of matching technology to public safety needs in order to make the world a safer place. This is something that I think all of our listeners will resonate with because this has been a hot topic in public discourse over the last few years. Um, under Rick's leadership, the company has now grown from a garage in Tucson to a NASDAQ-listed global market leader in uh, conducted electrical weapons, body-worn camera, and software. Uh, I am very proud to say that Axon is one of the cooler companies in Seattle from my perspective. The mission today is to protect life. It has two main product lines, Taser and software and sensors. And originally known for its Taser product focus, Axon has done a really fantastic job transforming into a SaaS um, business with a stock rise of over 4,000% in the last decade. Axon has been around for over 28 years. Rick. I'm so happy to have you joining us today. Where are you Zooming in from? I'm actually in Sarasota, Florida. When the pandemic hit, my wife said, hey, you're working from home anyway. So we got on the internet and said, let's go live on a beach somewhere. Hey, well done for you. And how's that going? Are you, are you, do you travel back to Seattle very often? Uh, are you, are you going to be in Florida indefinitely? 
Uh, the wife and kids really like it here. I think the world has changed and will never go back to the way it was. Uh, we've, we've gone to a largely distributed workforce. Uh, we, we're, we're trying to focus in on how do we have events that are so cool, people wanna come into the office and we bring them in more for the relationship building. Um, but then for day to day, you know, it's gonna depend of course on the job role. But for me, I actually find I'm more productive when I'm not coming into the office every day. Because as the CEO, it's much better for me to be spending time with customers than internal, you know, managerial issues. So I'm also terrible at managing my time. So it turns out that uh, actually working remotely makes it easier. Uh, it just puts some friction into getting mundane things on my calendar. And that makes it easier for me to focus on long-term issues. Well, I, I'm excited to dive into the long-term issues. Your guys' company is a fascinating one. Um, for people who are less familiar with it, I mean, I just tend to say like, you know, the body camera movement, right? I mean, 10 years ago, there was all these questions around shootings happening and how could you know what had happened? And obviously you guys have played a role in elevating awareness of that. But if you were gonna break down Axon to your grandmother or to my four-year-old son, right? What would you describe Axon as? Well, I think fundamental change in human society happens best through technology. Uh, you know, we tend to think in terms of politics and, and other functions, but when you get a fundamental technology shift, that changes the world in an irreversible way. And one of the areas that I saw was sorely lacking in tech innovation is just personal safety, self-defense. Uh, and this happened in 1993. I was living in Belgium in graduate school, and two of my high school football teammates were shot and killed in a road rage incident, basically an altercation at a red light that spun out of control. The other motorist pulled a gun out of the glove box. Uh, he was a businessman with a legally licensed firearm. My two friends, you know, they were playing college football and, and uh, they would occasionally get in a dust up, shall we say. And this just seems like one that spun out of control and it ruined three lives in an instant. They're both dead now. And the, the man who shot them is spending his life in prison. And I became very interested in why is it that even as of the early 1990s, we're still firing lead shrapnel at each other. I mean, that's how we fought wars hundreds of years ago. Uh, I mean, during the Revolutionary War, right, we were firing bullets at each other in the fields of New England. And medicine back then was like a bottle of whiskey in a, in a saw, uh, or transportation was maybe a horse. You think about how far these other industries have come, but the way we deal with one of our most basic needs is still with bullets. And so I had this basic concept, hey, we should go innovate here. And I want to stay away from the politics about whether people should or shouldn't have guns. Let's just give them something better. If you could buy Captain Kirk's phaser to defend yourself, I think almost every rational person would say that's a much better choice. I don't want to have to take a life, you know, but I need to be able to protect myself. And then we really found a home, of course, in law enforcement, uh, where they're the ones who are actually out protecting us and, and carrying weapons to use in the unfortunate cases where they need to. And then that's where we ended up getting into body cameras. We learned, you know, about all the, the, the controversy and risk around police, whether it was using a taser that we had created, a taser weapon, or using a firearm. Uh, and so we created the body camera industry, um, which then led to us becoming the largest cloud software provider in uh, the local government sector, because you got to do something with all these videos. And it turns out having each police department try to run their own data center is just not a very efficient approach. So on each of these, we found a thread that we just pulled on about, okay, here's an interesting problem. Let's chase this down and 
in many cases, we had to go learn a whole bunch of new skills and hire new people to solve that problem. But we're, we've been chasing a chain of related problems, uh, all related to how do we make the world net a safer place? I want to dive into that video area. So I know that the Axon Cloud, right, um, just from the discussions leading up to this interview, it was not what I've, I understand to have been, you know, a golden nugget idea where immediately everybody looked at it and said, oh, yeah, that's brilliant. We should do that. In fact, actually, what I heard is there was a bit of a bit of resistance within the organization when you pitched that you really wanted to double down on the cloud. And yet, if you look at your guys' financials today, right, I mean, that segment has grown 57 percent annually over the last five years and it's the core of your ecosystem. I'm very curious about how that, that idea of Axon Cloud came to be. And as you said, pulling on that thread, what was that process like for you as a leader? Because it's not easy to follow that thread uh, always. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I've actually found, I think the most transformative ideas are the ones that initially get a no. That means they're not obvious. Um, actually, the biggest failure of a product was one that was a spectacular splash when we unveiled it. Uh, so let me tell you about that one for a second. In 1997, we did a car security product called the Auto Taser. And it was basically a, a locking bar you could put on your steering wheel that would shock you if you tried to remove it. It was a bit of a gimmick. We did this at the Consumer Electronics Show as a pseudo publicity stunt. And it went bonkers. We had so much press, so much media. Everybody's like, oh, this is the greatest idea ever and the product ended up being a real flop. Whereas the things where we challenge people's kind of worldview with something new that they don't immediately accept, but the underlying principle is something we can believe in, that's where we found success. So, you know, with the taser, initially I remember police officers telling me, you know, what are you talking about? We don't, we're never gonna electrocute people. You know, this is America, we're not gonna use these electric guns. I say, wait a minute, you're shooting holes in people today. Like this is, we can do something way safer. When we got to body cameras, it was very similar. In fact, the inciting incident for us to do body cameras involved a trial in, in, with our taser. I was in Northern California and it was involving a man who died in police custody. And he was a very troubled individual with a long history of methamphetamine abuse. And he was in a toxic overdose situation when police were called to his house. He was dragging his uh, handicapped father around the front yard by his arm. Uh, he attacked police violently. And I remember one of the officers turning to me and saying, Rick, I've been in, in law enforcement for 25 years. This was the only night I was scared. He said, this, this was like walking into a scene from The Exorcist. You couldn't imagine just this, the state this person was in was terrifying. Um, and yet in the, in the trial, None of that came across because police, as, as representatives of the government, have to be very precise in the language they use. Uh, you know, it's always Mr. Heston, you know, X, Y, Z, whereas the family on the other side had these very emotional uh, descriptions of what they believed happened. And it couldn't have been more night and day. Uh, the, the, these people were talking about different universes in describing the same incident. And I remember thinking, you know what? We, we need to record these things so at least we can have a factual basis about what happened. Because if you believe the family in this case, these officers were dead wrong. But if you believe the officers, you would see they had no choice in this insanely difficult situation. And it was the, the, the he said, she said situation uh, just blown up into incredible proportions. So that was the inciting moment. Now, as we dug in and we started working on body cameras, we'd already been selling tasers to law enforcement. And we realized 
in the US alone, there's 18,000 police departments, all with their own IT departments. If we wanted to create software and have 18,000 agencies figure out how to run it, we would have had to, uh, I mean, just the logistics alone would have been impossible. So I remember somebody I was interviewing for had a software and the guy educated me about the cloud. He basically said, hey, look, Rick, like iTunes went from a software on your computer to now it's in the cloud and you don't even buy CDs anymore, right? And it just made so much sense. It was like, okay, this is clearly where the world is going. And in fact, it's these simple insights. The reason the iPod won was they did hardware, software, and ultimately cloud distribution. In the body camera space, we realized the hardware is, while important, it's not the whole widget, so to speak. We should just kind of copy what Apple had done with the whole ecosystem, but for police. And that way our customers could take the camera, plug it in and just go, and we could run the software in the background. Now I'll just end by saying, it seemed obvious on first principles, but customer reactions were not good. Initially, police were like, I do not want to wear a camera. It's big brother. My boss is just going to niggle me over every minor detail. I'll be micromanaged for my entire day. I had customers tell me, hey, this is police evidence. We can't put it in the hands of some private company. It's illegal to use the cloud. But the more we would dig in, it's like, well, wait a minute. Oh, I see. Your real concern is security and privacy. Well, it turns out on a first principles basis in the cloud, we can do security much better than a 20 person agency of local city government that doesn't have even the right expertise to be able to do it. So we just doubled down because the underlying principles made too much sense. The explosion of cameras and smartphones, police were being recorded everywhere they went. We knew in our heart that this is a capability they're going to need. And the only way to do it will be to create a connected camera in the cloud. Otherwise, it'll die under the logistics uh, challenges of just trying to get 18,000 agencies to do it on their own in terms of running the software and the servers. So now, obviously, hindsight, having the benefit of hindsight, those first principles instincts, right? Um, they, they ended up being right. But talk to us a little bit about the journey between then and now, because I'm imagining it, it wasn't that easy as a leader. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, Explain it, it, was, it was brutal. I mean, we had a very profitable company with our taser devices. Um, and all of a sudden, we had to go figure out, we had to hire people. We'd never built a camera before. We'd never built software. And we built this team from the ground up. And look, our first couple of years was a calamity of errors. We were, we were learning how to do this. Um, and I remember we got to about 2012. And we were losing probably $10, $20 million a year. Our shareholders were unhappy because we were, you know, killing the, the, the profit and loss statement with this new investment. Um, our customers at that point were telling us that they didn't really want this. Look, we, we don't want to wear cameras and we don't think we can put data in the cloud. Uh, and then the internal company employees were getting uncomfortable with it, where I would say it was almost to the point of a civil war where people didn't like seeing their stock, you know, they get stock compensation. The stock was down from a high of, I think, 33 down to around $3 a share. Uh, we're down almost 90% at one point. Um, our, our cost structure was getting out of whack. And then we, had, we were hiring a bunch of, you know, as you know, software development and software salespeople are very expensive. Um, and so we had a bunch of other people saying, wait a minute, why are we hiring these expensive salespeople who haven't sold a thing yet? And so in that environment, there was a, a real movement to like, hey, we should just kill this thing. Customers would tell us they don't want it. It's destroying our financials. Our shareholders are skeptical. And I remember standing in front of the company 
And uh, we get anonymous questions, right, for our company meetings. And the most upvoted question was, when are we going to shut down the video business? And uh, I stood in front of the company and I put up a picture of Cortez burning ships. I said, folks, there, there's no going back. We, this is the right thing to do. We, you know, cameras are proliferating. Our customers need to have video. The public is going to come to accept it. And the only way this can work is if we look to the future, not the past, delivering this as a service through the cloud is the only way the logistics make sense. So we are going to double down and stick with it. And then a few years later, you know, we, from that point forward, you know, we, we were still tweaking to, to figure, figure things out. Uh, our first camera was a disaster. I, we way over-engineered it. We had to go back to the drawing board and simplify the camera. Um, we had bought our own computer equipment to run our own cloud. Uh, and six months later, we effectively shut it down and moved into Amazon, uh, realizing there's no way we could do it as efficiently as they did. Uh, and then Ferguson, Missouri happened, the Michael Brown case and the world changed. And I think that's when everybody realized, wait a minute, like we have, we don't know what happened in the world becoming more divided, shall we say, and polarized people who have a skeptical view of police came to the belief that the officers executed Michael Brown, who had his hands up and was trying to surrender people who believe law enforcement attempted to say, well, clearly that officer, you know, has marks on his face was being assaulted by a much larger individual defended himself. And it just came down to, you know, what is your inherent bias? Who do you believe? And that's the camp you'd fall into. And that was when the, that was when not only did Michael Brown's family and political leadership say, hey, we need we need, we need to know what happened. We need to have people wear cameras. That's also when I saw police start saying, you know what? I want a camera. I don't want to be that officer who if you're a cop, and, and by the way, I tend to believe the officer in that case. I think the subsequent investigation showed he was really being assaulted. But regardless of what your belief was, no officer would want to be that cop because they could look at that and say he might have done everything right and his life got ruined. He had to, you know, he had to leave town. Uh, ultimately, his family went through hell. Uh, I don't even know what's happened to him, but he, he went through horrors as well as Michael Brown's family. And that could all have been different. And, and so a lot of cops now will say they won't go on patrol without a camera. But luckily, we, uh, you know, we just stuck to our core belief. No, the problem must be solved. And the way we're doing it is the way that makes the most sense. And in this case, our customers just aren't seeing it yet. But that's because change is hard and we just need to persevere. Um, I just pulled up my TD Ameritrade. You guys' share is at 183 today. So clearly you've come a long way from the 33 that you were at. What would you tell other listeners? So the people who listen to this podcast, they're often either founders like you who are crazy enough about solving a problem if they build a business. And I say that crazy with, a, with love, or they are the product professionals that you bring in to help them accelerate through the product development process that you just mentioned, right? So for the people who are listening, how, if at all, would you say, you know, the lessons you learned about accelerating between that day standing up in front of the employees saying, guys, we're not going back to where you're at today. Uh, you said there's lots of lessons learned, or you said there's lots of mistakes made, but as you abstract out, are there any pieces of advice that you would share with people about how to move with more velocity through that process? So I would say the most important thing uh, with product in particular is knowing when to listen to the customer and when not to. And look, I, I, 
sound like a genius today because we got this one right. Look, I've gotten some catastrophically wrong. Um, we did a taser device in, let's see, we introduced it in 2009, uh, where we were going to make a multi-shot device. Well, I wanted to, to get up right effectively from a muzzle loader, one shot per cartridge up to three. And I had some internal police officers who saw it and they said, hey, Rick, this thing's too big. Like cops aren't gonna wanna wear it. And my response was, no, you know, you're not, you're not seeing it. Wait till you see the final product. It's gonna be so beautiful. It's got a color screen and it can give you red, yellow, green and let you know if it's got a good connection or not. And when customers see all the beautiful capabilities, they will give us the extra space. Well, it turns out I was wrong. We launched that product. The Arizona State Highway Patrol bought a thousand of them and the union sued them and said, we refuse to wear them because they're too big and we, we have to sit funny in the car. It's going to give us back problems. I can't, it can't fit between my hip and the sidewall. Um, and that was like an example where, you know, had I taken the time to listen, the, that one was not overcomable. Uh, but in the other case with customers saying they didn't want to wear cameras in the cloud, you know, in that case, I think not listening was the right answer. And I don't know that there's any fixed rule about when you listen and when you don't. Uh, I guess for me, the, the rough heuristic is if there is an underlying assumption that the customer just, you know, the thing that they're giving you feedback on, like in the case of the cloud, they were just wrong about security. Like they couldn't do it as well as we could at scale with a partner like Microsoft. Um, but really digging in and not glossing over when the customer is telling you, you know, going to that second and third level of depth to figure out, okay, what's the real objection and can we overcome it? In the case of size, nope, we couldn't overcome it. I didn't take enough time to understand it. And that product, you know, 10 million bucks down the drain, total failure. Um, I think that's the, the most important one is figuring out exactly when you're gonna listen. Now today, every product we develop, we put dozens to hundreds of police officers through with our engineers, everything from how the buttons feel, how it mounts to your uniform with a body camera, how the holster unlocks in the case of a taser, like each to the squeeze of a trigger pull, like how much force should it have? There we get tons of user feedback. And since we started doing that, knock on wood, we've not had a failed product launch, um, but it's, it's getting that right balance of, okay, there's times we need to listen to customers on all the details. And then there's times that the customer doesn't know what they want yet. And I'll give you one, another example on that one. So our current device is called the Taser 7. It's a two-shot weapon. And there's two different cartridges, one for short range and one for long range. Now, we asked our customers early on, hey, would you ever want to carry it loaded with one of each? That way you could pick whether the, the person's close or far. The initial feedback was, no, 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 too complicated. Okay, great. So we just made it so there's no way to select between the two cartridges. We launched the weapon and then it's six months into the field, we're getting tons of requests. Oh, hey, now that we understand how this thing works, we'd like to be able to select between short range and long range. Okay, well, we didn't have an extra switch on the device. It was too late to add a piece of hardware, but we had an accelerometer. So we went out and we asked our customers, hey, what if we had you do a tilt select? You basically flick your hand to the, to the side and the weapon would register, oh, he wants to change cartridges. We asked a bunch of, uh, of customers, they said, absolutely not, no way, it, it'll be too buggy, unreliable, feels weird. We went, we built the prototype and we put it in their hands and they absolutely loved it. So this was one where the way they conceptualized it was an absolute no, but once they could experience it, it turned to yes. 
And so uh, one of my general rules of thumb is when we're doing things that are kind of radically new, that we shouldn't take customer feedback based on a conceptual description. They have to experience. So getting it to some sort of experience we can put in their hand, then we'll trust the feedback. I think that's a huge lesson uh, for many people. And with, I mean, it's more difficult, of course, when you're creating actual physical products, um, but you can still work to achieve that. And certainly in the area of digital products, right? Giving a customer a simple experience and asking them to respond versus trying to, to describe versus show is, is very ineffective usually. Yeah, there's a, our next generation of the Taser device is in development as we speak. And its core feature is one that when I ask customers about it, 100% say no. But the moment they experience it, 100% say, oh, wow, yeah, that's the way to do this. I can't tell you what the feature is, but stay tuned in the next couple of years. Um, it's, it's, it's really a fun, uh, fun story to be able to go back on where conceptually everybody hates it, but experientially everybody loves it. Well, I think that would be interesting. I mean, your your company, as we've said, has now been around for about 30 years. So what do you think? I mean, 10 years from now, right? Let's uh, add another 10-year milestone. It's year 2030. What do you think uh, that the problem will be that you're trying to solve at that point? And why do you think Axon will continue to be successful in that area? So um, by 2030, we will have launched an energy weapon that is more effective than a pistol, uh, and it won't kill people. I mean, look, occasionally there will be deaths or injuries, uh, so we can't get rid of all the risk, but we can make a non-lethal weapon that will outperform a gun in stopping power. And the minute we do that, you're gonna see police shift where today the, the, the lethal weapon is the thing that's in their hand until, it, it's not only the weapon of last resort, it's the weapon of first resort. Meaning, like even in the UK, if you've got a, you know, an, a response team that's going on a high risk scenario, they start with the gun in their hand. because They're like, hey, if we're dealing with a very dangerous individual, we need the most effective thing in our hand. Now, once they've got an assessment of what's going on, OK, wait a minute, now we'll transition and we might try a taser weapon. And then, of course, if it is a lethal force, they go back to their, their, their lethal weapons. We are going to build so that the most effective, fastest thing that puts the threat down is an energy weapon that doesn't kill them. And so that's gonna be a huge shift. So by 2030, I think, well, I know, we will have the tech solved and we're gonna be dealing with all the cultural and policy implications of driving that change, especially in America, where you know, our relationship with guns is very historical and there's a lot of emotional connection and, and, and cultural connection. Um, so it's going to take time. I'm actually really excited for the UK, New Zealand, uh, you know, France, Germany, all these other countries that don't have such a gun centric culture. I think we'll rapidly see them transition once we can have the data to prove we're more effective. And then in 2030, the new problems we'll be working on, uh, very focused on the military um, applications. I think modern military uh, engagements Lethal force is counterproductive. The more people we killed in Vietnam, the, the less strategically successful we were. The same thing in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and unfortunately, militaries around the world are still hyper-focused on lethality. We need more lethality. Uh, and I'm out starting to talk to these folks saying, no, you don't. And of course, you know, who are you? You're some crazy outsider. What do you know about the military? 
Well, outsiders can bring a new perspective and our job is not to rack up bodies. Our job is to protect the national interest. And it turns out in, in countries where we're deployed, look at a modern military, let, let, I don't think we're gonna see a major war between like a, a, a US, China, Russia, or NATO countries. That just, it's irrational for nuclear states to go to war. Um, but I think we're gonna see a lot more of these dealing with non-nation state actors who basically use uncertainty, right? They hide in a crowd, they wear suicide vests, they approach a checkpoint looking like a pregnant woman and you don't know, is that a, is that a baby or is that an explosive, you know, an explosive item that she's carrying? And that's a horrible situation to put any human being in. And my son served in Afghanistan. He's got his M16 and he's now got to decide, do I kill the pregnant lady because she didn't stop? Um, that's going to be another big cultural challenge. Uh, and by in the 2030s, I think that's where I'm going to be knee deep focused on, okay, how do we start to rethink the way our military engages and get away from this idea of you know, killing and destroying things to how do we suppress threats in a way that elevates humanity and, and sees people kind of welcoming Western presence uh, rather than seeing us as, you know, oppressors that are, are frankly killing, killing locals. I mean, I'm curious, especially working in a space where the topic is so polarizing, right? And knowing what you said in the beginning, which is you wanted to try and stay out of the political dialogue on ownership of guns. You know, what advice do you have for people who are passionate about building a product to solve a problem or a business to commercialize that product and problem solving? But it is a very you know, central and, and potentially kind of reactive or polarizing area. I mean, stay, shy away from it, dive head in because fewer people are going to be willing to, to swim in those waters. I mean, what, what, what are your thinking? Yeah, I would say, you know, dive right in and you're right. One of our superpowers is we will run at problems that most companies would run away from, right? Like a Facebook a Google and Apple, there's no way on earth they would touch the problems that we go after because you know, even body cameras, right? There's privacy issues, there's, there's civil liberties issues, uh, but that doesn't scare us, that makes it interesting to us. So one of the things I'm gonna be talking about next week at our conference is how we use drones and robots to suppress a threat, right? And right now that's a very polarizing topic. There's many people saying, whoa, 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 we should never, we should never use a drone to put any sort of a weapon, even a non-lethal one on a drone. And on the other side, you've got, you know, basically military R&D functions all over the world, whether it's China, the UK is building drones armed with lethal weapons, so is the US. Um, and so I'm, I'm gonna dive headlong into that and say, look, here's, I think we need to first establish what are the rules of the road? And let's start with what is the world we live in today? Today, we live in a world where when you call 911 for help, at least in the US, what shows up is a human being toting a gun. And is that really the best solution? Because if you think about it, in the moment they have to deploy that gun, that person is mentally impaired. And I don't mean that to insult anyone. What I mean to say is if, if you meet anyone, we're human. If we're in a situation where we're in so much risk, it's appropriate to kill another person, things happen in our physiology. Adrenaline surges, we get the fight or flight response. Our prefrontal cortex that does complex decision-making goes largely offline. Our fine motor skills 
out the window. If you talk to police trainers, one of the things we've learned, every piece of equipment has to be super simple because people are shaking. They're unable to coordinate complex movement. They can't hear very well. They're the hearing occlusion. What a horrible situation to be in when you have to make the most consequential decision of your life. Am I going to kill this person or not? Now, if we remove the operator from the scene, and we're seeing this happen in the military, right? Drone operators can make much more careful decisions. In fact, it's not even just the operator. Any drone strike can go through a business process where there's a legal review, there's an ethical, right? Do we have the right target? Now, that doesn't mean we always get it right, but we can be more careful. I think we're going to see that coming to law enforcement where, hey, if we have a situation that's very dangerous, maybe sending a guy with a gun into the building, maybe that ain't the right call. Maybe we should send in a robotic system that can interact, that can take its time. And if it gets destroyed, eh, it costs a few thousand dollars, but not a human life. I think we can get to a much better place, but there's gonna be a lot of nuance. And I know, look, people are gonna, there's gonna be a lot of vitriol on this topic. And so after I'm gonna lay out, uh, we, we've drafted the three laws of robotics inspired by Isaac Asimov in science fiction. We've rewritten them to the real world. I'm gonna unveil them at our conference on November 1st. And then I'm gonna host a Reddit forum where I'm gonna, Basically invite everybody and say, okay, if I'm wrong, explain how. But let's not do it over Twitter with, you know, a bunch of incendiary quick quips back and forth. I'm going to spend a full day on Reddit and you might talk me out of it. We haven't done anything yet. I'm going to tell you what my thinking is. I'm going to be very transparent. Here's what I think the rules of the road should be. Let's have a debate. And we're going to build the ethical framework before we build the product. And I'm pretty excited. This is a kind of a first for us where we're going out this publicly. Um, well in advance of even doing the product design to have a public conversation about how we should think about designing these products. I think it's a fascinating approach and it's a risky one, but what are the rewards that you get? Why are you willing to take on those risks and run at that hard problem in this, in this way? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, that's what makes my job fun and exciting uh, that we solve, we love running into difficult problems and, and it's both, invigorating, it's interesting. Uh, and I think this is how you change the world, right? Can we do better than human beings surging with adrenaline with their finger on the trigger of a lethal weapon? Yeah, I mean, it's obvious to me that is not the optimal approach. Now, we can say we shouldn't do all these other things, but what that means is we lock in the status quo and it just doesn't change. And I'm all for like, look, people, should, we should try to get along better and we need more uh, you know, we need more human engagement. That is also true. But there are moments where you have a, you know, a shooter at the Mandalay Bay Hotel who is actively firing from an elevated position. We got to be able to take people like that down and preferably capture them alive and do it quickly. We've got people in America and other countries showing up with assault weapons to schools. Um, like these, these are very real challenges in modern society. And I think we need to think about how we address those differently. And it is going to make us uncomfortable because we're dealing with very sort of negative situations. But if we can solve them, that's, those are problems worth solving. And how do you bring, a, you know, we are a very product focused uh, bunch here at For the Love of Product. So how do you bring product professionals into this type of process with you? Like, are you approaching this with your chief product officer or your head of product kind of 
watching you go and do this Reddit AMA for a day to learn and inform strategy? Like, how do you work with uh, your product leadership uh, at Axon? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I will tend to be the one that gets out front and says the crazy stuff. Um, just as a founder CEO, I've learned that is one of the uh, one of the superpowers that we get that that you get a little more creative license to come out and the world kind of expects it. I've, I've set the tone with our customers like, Hey, I want to challenge your thinking. And sometimes I'm going to get it wrong. And then where I interface with the product professionals is all right, you know, we're going to learn in this together, but there's going to be a thousand refinements that have to come together. Uh, and that is not my core strength. Um, you know, I think I'm pretty good at the, uh, sort of seeing the big picture about where we could do things differently. Uh, and then having a team of, of great product professionals who can be thought partners in that, and then who can take the ball. And, you know, the guy I'm working with uh, right now on drones and robotics, we, we just have the most fascinating conversations because we're starting with the ethical framework. And then that's leading into things like building an authentication system for how we would handle fire control codes. If we build a robot that's capable of deploying force, we're going to build fire control mechanisms that are probably similar to the way they handle the nuclear codes, uh, you know, at the nation state level. But now we can bring that level of authentication and control down to individual police officer uh, type levels. That'll be a huge step forward. It's, it, I think it's really exciting for our product people that people that when they come, come here, it's like, hey, you get to come work on the things everybody's talking about. And now you have to be, you have to have a little bit of a steel will because you're going to take some negativity, but our, our belief is we're, we're, we, we are transparent about what we're doing. We're solving hard problems. We're not going to get them perfect, but we're going to get them better than if we weren't here doing the work. Um, and that's, you find like, this is, I think what real product people want to do. They'd rather be in doing something that's transformative than, you know, the incremental, you know, tuning of something that they want to feel like they're making a difference, right? I think we all want to look back and see our footprints in the snow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, Rick. So we're getting to the end of the show where I get to ask my favorite question. Um, and that question is, if there was a museum dedicated to the world's most important products, what product do you think should be in that museum and why? So let me start looking backward. Up until now, I think the automobile, the airplane, the personal computer, uh, and the smartphone certainly all belong in there for pretty obvious reasons. They have fundamentally transformed society. I think going forward, uh, Taser 9 should be in there. Now, that's we haven't launched yet. We're on Taser 7. Next will be 8 and then 9. I think by Taser 9, we will have effectively obsoleted the pistol, which is going to be I think a pretty momentous shift in how we think about modern society. Uh, and then in there, uh, you know, after that, I think uh, AR glasses uh, or AR contacts, I think that's going to be super transformative when we can get to the merging of our digital realities and our physical realities. And then after that will be the brain computer interface. I think, uh, I think that stuff is coming. I actually started out uh, studying neurobiology I was very interested at the human machine interface. My, I wrote my college entrance exam or essay on my application 
I wanted to build robotic limbs. I was fascinated by Luke Skywalker and the, you know, the $6 million man from the seventies, this idea that we could build machinery that our nervous system could interface to. Uh, now, after my friends were shot and killed, I went in a slightly different direction. It's still neurobiology. I've built a machine that can plug in and interface with your body and take over your, your muscles on a temporary basis. Uh, so I am very fascinated and I have 11 year old twins uh, and I'm counseling them. You should study AI, computer science and neuroscience because I think the merging of human biology and non-human intelligence uh, is going to be a pretty wild ride. I hope I'm around long enough to see it happen. Usually that's my last question, but I can't help but ask this. Uh, what do you think now? Uh, looking back at where you thought you'd be when you left school, right? Um, at, are you proud of the career that you've had? Do you feel like it's been rewarding so far? Or are you just still rolling up your sleeves and excited to get to Taser 9, Taser 10? What's your so level? it's hard to say this without sounding arrogant, but I'm in this amazing position where I would not trade my life with anyone like movie star, you know, whatever I've, and it's, it's been the journey that's been so great. Like the first seven years were a brutal success in 1999. There were days I, I or nights I sat crying in my apartment because I'd wiped out my parents financially. And I thought there was no way this would ever succeed. So I've been through this journey where when I first founded the company, I thought, Oh, we're going to be, you know, I'm going to be a billionaire in two years. Seven years later, I'm like, oh my God, I've wiped out my, my family. This thing's never going to make it. And in that moment of, of the darkest days, that's actually when I met my wife. And, and uh, that was kind of a turning point in my sort of, she's, she's become my rock and my soulmate. And we went through those darkest days together. And I did, I think my, the company did our best work. We, we solved the underlying effectiveness problem of early tasers. And literally squeaked by was with, we had bills that were a year past due when we launched our product because we were so out of cash, the M26. And that was a transformative product. And between 2000 and 2004, we went public. We were a rocket ship. In 2004, we were the number one performing stock in the world. And then in January 2005, I got hit with an SEC investigation. The stock craters goes from 33 to 3. Floods of lawsuits and litigation. 2005 was a miserable year. I'm under a federal investigation. Out of that pain came the body camera, where it's like, okay, the world is like clearly focused on what we're doing. There's a lot of negative energy around tasers and are they dangerous or police abusing people? Let's not argue about it. Let's solve that problem. We created the body camera, which has now taken the company, you know, from a billion dollar valuation to an eleven billion dollar valuation. Not that that matters. I mean, yes, it, it, it does matter, but it's a, it's a measure of success if you're going to keep score, you know, uh, and we've been able to bring 2,000 people into the mission. Uh, and now that's given us the ability to focus on the next leg of the journey. And I think the next one, uh, if, if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, I would, I would say the only disappointment is our work is so unfinished. We've made the best non-lethal weapons in the world with tasers today, but they're still not that good, to be honest. They're, they're still a second-class to the firearm. This next leg, we're going to go from being sort of this best in this new category to obsoleting the old category. And the old category is a horrific device. Like killing people is not something we should accept anymore. Uh, and I don't criticize police using it today. They have to, because we don't have the tech that has made it obsolete yet. So anyway, I get, I get to live in this fantastic life journey of these amazingly dark moments, turn, you know, 
turned around into big successes. We've had a couple of those runs um, and I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's been an incredible pleasure to hear you tell us a bit about your story. And I think if nothing else comes from this pod, you're going to have a flood of interested people wanting to join the mission because you're incredibly inspiring about it. And uh, at the time of recording, I just uh, just heard news that an, an unfortunate gun accident happened uh, on a movie set this week or right. last weekend. Um, I just heard it when I was coming back last night. And a future where we remove unnecessary risk to deliver better outcomes and a safer future for all sounds pretty good. So thank you for sharing the story with us today, Rick. It's been, it's been my true pleasure. Thanks. Well, and any of your uh, product interested folks that are listening, go to axon.com and check it out. We, uh, we, we can always use more brilliant minds. There are so many problems to solve. Um, one of the next ones I want to focus on in the next 10 years is the prison system. This idea of throwing people in jail, it's medieval. Like we did this 2000 years ago. Now, look, I'm not criticizing the industry as it exists today. Again, it's one of these where we need to invent the future before we can criticize the present. Uh, and look, there are some people that are so dangerous, psychopaths and serial killers that they need to be sequestered from society. But the vast majority of how we use incarceration, I think, is actually hugely counterproductive. It's, it's, a, it's a scar on, on humanity. It's a huge cost. And I think we can do better. So if you're interested in these problems, reach out. That'll be one of the next ones we turn our attention to. All right. You're going to have to come back and tell us about progress on that in a few more years. Perfect. Happy to keep coming back. I love that. I love these topics, as you can tell, and I'm delighted to be on your show. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the product-led audience. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product.